We'll open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. We're going to have one more introduction sermon before we get into the actual exposition of this book. And what I'd like you to do is turn to the very last chapter and the very last verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's actually the last two verses. In verse 13, Solomon says, The conclusion... When all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. I have a confession that is probably uh, not something that's um, solitary to me and that is I hate surprises. I don't like surprises. I don't like surprise parties. Oh, I like doing them to other people, but I don't like receiving them. I don't, I don't, like, I don't like Christmas presents. I, I open Christmas presents early. I, I always have. It's a problem. I used to un, un, unwrap them and wrap them up with my parents around. I confess that to them later in life. I just don't do well. I typically read the last chapter of a book before I read all of it to see if I want to read it. I, um, I want to know how a movie ends before I go. It's a curse. I get it. I know there's counseling available for me in the prayer room afterwards. I'm okay with that. It's not always good to see the conclusion and the end of things before the beginning. But tonight, I want to start at the, at the end of Ecclesiastes and let you know where we're going. Because one of the great dangers of week-by-week week, slow exposition through a biblical book is that you don't get the whole, you just get parts you don't get the, the puzzle picture, you just get pieces. And if there was ever a place where that can be particularly dangerous, it's here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a sermon. In fact, it's given by Koheleth, the preacher. It's given by a man who is wanting us to see an introduction, a body, and a conclusion to his, his speech, his sermon. It's important that we understand that at the very end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us why he's writing this, why he wrote it. The conclusion is the fear of the Lord and obedience. It's also to see that we should fear the Lord and obey the Lord underneath the, the auspice that God is ever present as our judge and there is a judgment day coming. Every act that we do, every thought that we think will one day be given account before the Lord. This is where we're going, and this is Solomon's conclusion to the goal and the purpose of life. Now, you, you might say, well, who cares? Big deal. Uh, who, who cares about a guy who was writing 2,900 years ago? Well, you should, because Solomon has written this book in a certain context. We looked at the biography of Solomon last time. Remember, he started out so well. Everything was going was so wonderfully. He he had uh, more money and more riches and fame, more influence than anyone who had ever lived. He, he had the wisdom of God that was given to him because he asked it. He had the, the an innate ability to rule the people well, to discern good and evil, to be a judge before the people. God gave him wealth beyond his imagination. This is that silver and gold were like rocks in Israel during this time. He had unlimited power. He could do anything he wanted. All of the kings and queens of the world were coming to Solomon to just sit under his wisdom. 
Solomon was the third king of Israel, and he was the last king of the United Monarchy. Remember, his son would uh, divide the kingdom, and he would take uh, uh, the southern tribe, Rehoboam, the, the southern two tribes, and Jeroboam would take the northern ten. Solomon was the wisest man to ever live before or after, except for Jesus. He was rich beyond his wildest imagination, so much money that he literally could have anything he wanted, so much power he could do anything he wanted. But as we saw last week, pagan women and their idols led his heart astray. He chose to love women more than he chose to love God. As a collateral footnote, we said last week, those of you who are single, please know, who you choose to give your romance to will have the greatest spiritual influence on your life no holds barred. As we open up the pages of Ecclesiastes, though, we, we're listening to the musings of a wise man who has some significant failings. This is Solomon at the end of his life after he's looking back. And if you can track Solomon's life, he started out uh, so well and he was doing well in his kingdom. He was doing well ruling. And then he got led astray, as 1 Kings 11 tells us. His heart was torn away from Yahweh, torn away from God after the foreign deities, the foreign uh, idols, rather, of, of these women who he married. A thousand women in his life, remember? 700 wives, six, uh, 300 concubines. And then in 1 Kings 11, we, it ends. It's the last we hear of Solomon. He crashed and burned. Ecclesiastes, though, is after Solomon comes to his senses and then writes back to not only his sons and children, but to anyone who will listen. If I could use an illustration that we could, we'll go back to over and over in this series, it's almost like Solomon got into a car and was trying to go uh, as fast as he could and, and, and clear a canyon that was a half a mile across. Speeds, he goes, he goes off the cliff, and he doesn't even go 30 yards falls to the bottom, crashes, burns, gets out, rolls himself out, looks back up on the cliff and sees us getting in a car. And the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon screaming at us, don't do what I did. You can say it this way, you can learn from experience. You'll learn from your own experience or you can learn from the experience of someone else. And it's way better to learn from someone else's experience, isn't it? That's why we always got our little brother to test to see if the stove was hot. I want to learn from his experience, not my own. Now, there have been many critics of this book and many misunderstandings of it as well. Uh, it's been called the black sheep of the Bible. Many rabbis would debate over whether or not it would soil their hands if they touched the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember, it was scrolls originally. And there was these large debates. If they even held or transferred the scroll of Ecclesiastes, they would have to go through a ceremonial cleansing. It's been viewed with such profound and skepticism and suspicion that some even question its canonicity, whether it belongs in the Bible at all. Most liberals try to separate it into separate authors, the preacher, the wise man, and the skeptic, because it has such apparently contradictory views of life in it. But there are many dangerous and conservative views that lead to trouble as well. For example, some think it's the musings of a rational man trying to reason himself to God. That's that's the Catholic view. Some think that the preacher reasons and comes to despair that all is hopelessness. In other words, it's a book of gloom and doom. Let me read you the note. And if you have one of these, you can follow along. 
about this book written in the Schofield Reference Bible. This is in the introduction of the Schofield Reference Bible. Quote, this book, Ecclesiastes, of man under the sun, this is the book of man under the sun reasoning about life. It is a book produced by human reason and apart from revelation. The philosophy it sets forth, which makes no claim to revelation, but inspiration is recorded for our instruction and represents the worldview of one of the wisest men, but it is purely human thought. It is not truth from God as it is presented, end quote. Now, there's a lot of really helpful things in the Schofield Reference Bible, but if you have one, would you just kind of mark that part out? There's no aspect of the book of Ecclesiastes that has not been the subject of serious debate. Its authorship, its date, its message all have been argued over and over from liberal and conservative scholars. Solomon, about 930 BC, is writing this book. And I believe with all my heart, without question, it is God's word from very beginning to end. But it is difficult to understand. Now, if you're still over at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, let me humble you if I can, because it humbles me. In some senses, they say this is the hardest book in the Bible to understand, scholars do. And yet, look at who it's addressed to. Second person in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your what? Youth. This is a book written to students. It's a book written to youth. It's a book where Solomon says, Don't do what I did. Learn from my mistakes so you don't have to learn from your own. So, lest we think, Oh, this is too deep. This is second story stuff, and I live in the basement. This book was intended to be read, understood, and applied by young people. What I'd like to do this evening is to walk us through a little bit about what the book is about and leave with the conviction that this book is not only God's inerrant, inspired, authentic word, but more importantly, that it may be the most important book for your worldview as a Christian. Every single day, you and I are making decisions that affect and shape how we view things, our worldview that affect the people around us, that, that affect our money, our life, our health. Let me make you a promise. We're all on a journey with Solomon here in this book who had tremendous victories and horrific setbacks. And in the coming weeks, if we listen to him, what he's going to teach us, I think he will equip us to handle anything and everything that comes our way. This is a specifically equipping book. It's in wisdom literature. It's supposed to be understood so that we'll learn how to live more wisely. What's more important and better than that is God will teach us a philosophy of life that will free us to enjoy this life to the fullest and prepare us for eternity at the same time. What's interesting about Ecclesiastes is it actually tells us how to enjoy life. It expects us to go into life with an attitude of enjoyment. Now, we've talked over and over about, I, I love how Tom Schreiner uh, discusses this that we have over we have a, to watch being 
having an over-realized eschatology and an under-realized eschatology. We're going to talk about that a lot in Ecclesiastes. In other words, over-realized, thinking that this, this world should be so much like heaven that there's, there's very little problems. That's a problem. The under-realized eschatology is we think that this is just a place we're passing through and we just got to get out of here as soon as possible. Part of the message of Ecclesiastes is this. If anyone is going to enjoy this planet and the things in this planet, it ought to be a believer who understands how to give God glory for the enjoyment of the things he's put on this planet. It's going to talk to us a lot about money and wealth and giving and receiving. It's going to talk to us about living and dying, war and peace. It's going to talk to us about how we understand our problems. Just for a peek, go back over to chapter 4 for a minute. Just if I can uh, whet your appetite a bit. What kind of man says this? Chapter 4, verse 2. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Wow. Oh, it gets better. Look at the next verse. But better off than both of them is the one who's never existed, who's never even seen the evil and activity that is done under the sun. He says elsewhere, it's not bad if we, were, we would have been stillborn. What? But this is the same man, go over to chapter 11, who tells us in verse 9, Rejoice, young man. There's our youth focus again. Rejoice, young man, during your youth, your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses, the desires of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Have fun. Enjoy this world. Now, it's not a bait and switch. He does say, though, verse, at the end of the verse, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. What he's saying is learn how to honor God and obey him and live life in between these two covers and you're going to have a great and a prosperous life spiritually. So with that kind of as a springboard, I want to jump into the wisdom of the storehouse of wisdom of Solomon. As we've noted, Ecclesiastes is the most misunderstood book in the Bible. The first time you read it, it can look like, look like a, a collection of contradictions and riddles. You can read chapter 3 and chapter 4 and say, did the same guy write this? That's what led liberal scholars to say there's no way the same man wrote all this. But I want to suggest that we should expect Ecclesiastes would be a difficult book. We should go in saying this is going to be a tough challenge. Why? Because the person who wrote it, he was the wisest person to ever live. It's written by one of the wisest men to have ever been on this planet. It's a humbling exhortation. It should put us in our place and make us work hard to understand it. It's written about a confusing set of issues. Satisfaction, judgment, the cyclical nature of existence and life. Money, gaining money, losing money. There's a theme over and over. To think about your money and your possessions in this way, you're going to work your whole life to get stuff that your children or your, those who inherit your stuff is going to get and they're going to plunder it all away because they didn't work hard to get it. That's encouraging, isn't it? It's an introspective perspective asking the question, why? Why? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Why is there joy? Why can't I experience it? 
But as difficult as this book may appear, I want to encourage you. I believe it's not only possible, but imperative that we have to understand Solomon's message. It's Solomon's rationale that he intends to be understood. He's not writing purposefully to confuse us or to be difficult to understand. He's not a madman who's, mad who's taking pleasure in our psychological diagnoses of his thought. Now, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 tell us that the preacher has written good and acceptable words. So he looks back at what he's written and says, these are good, these are acceptable, these are encouraging, these are proverbial truths tied together through the narrative of Solomon's own experience that provide a template for us to think about life more richly, more deeply, and more focused. So with those as our background, those thoughts, I want to give you a simple overview of the book's message and thrust, then we'll dive in in our next study. If we could boil the whole book down, Solomon is providing for us three reminders as he reflects on life. Three reminders as he reflects on life. This is a high altitude that we're gonna look at really quickly at the book of of, uh, Ecclesiastes. Number one, he wants us to remember that we live outside the garden of Eden. He wants us to remember that we live life outside the garden of Eden. There are so many allusions in this book back to Genesis. We'll come back to Genesis over and over and over. But just know this. Solomon is looking at the fact that really the, the whole of God's existence, the whole of God's, our existence before God rather, our, our experience with God is, is really broken down into three chapters, okay? Man in the garden, man between the garden and the consummation, and then heaven, That's it. You could actually preach the whole Bible in three points. Man before the fall, God's salvation after the fall, and enjoying God forever in heaven. That's the whole Bible in three three points. Solomon is dealing with that middle point in this book. He understands that man was kicked out of the garden. God intended us to live in a perfect world with God's provision and all enjoyments of all pleasure. And sin caused us to forfeit that. It's looking at the world that's broken. We live in a broken world. The way he talks about this over and over and over is is under the sun. Life under the sun. Uh, When you see that phrase, he's just saying life in a broken world. Life on a broken planet. So studying Ecclesiastes will necessitate that we go back constantly to Genesis. Now some phrases you're going to want to know about. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He uses that term vanities, uh, which is havel. Um, he, he uses that word 38 times. And he uses the term under the sun, which is really life after the garden and before heaven, 29 times. We'll sneak ahead in just a few weeks and look at how Solomon, excuse me, how Paul in Romans 8 actually I think is reflecting back on Ecclesiastes verses eight to 28 and looking at these realities of living in a broken world. The the actual creation groans for redemption itself. Now just for a minute, let's pull aside. We'll study this next time more intently, but vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says Koheleth, says the preacher. It's the thematic phrase that goes... From the beginning to the end, it's in chapter 1, verse 2, and in chapter 12, verse 8, it bookends the whole work. 
Now, we're going we're to learn a word, a Hebrew word that you need to know tonight, and you're going to learn it all the way through the book. It's H-E-V or B, depending on how you translate it, E-L. Some say Hebel, some say Hevel. Probably the, the closest is, is Hevel, but you can say whatever you want to. That's the term vanity, and it's so important to understand. It's been translated so wrongly in different places. Some people say it's meaninglessness. It's not meaninglessness. What it is is temporality. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's like saying temporal, temporal, nothing lasts. The best illustration I could give you is like steam off a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment, it's real, and then it's gone. When you look up the Hebrew word for this, this is the dictionary. Vapor, air, steam, breath. The word is most commonly used metaphorically for things that are Ephemeral, uh, insubstantial, uh, delusive, enigmatic, incomprehensible, superficial, inconsistent, contradictory, or even unreliable. Best way to say it is just, it doesn't last. Something is Havel when it cannot be held onto for very long. And Solomon will tell us Ultimately, everything in this world is vanity, is havel, in reference to eternity. So we have to learn to hold on to it loosely. It's like children who are at the beach. I've seen this uh, when we were in California, and children don't understand tides and tidal cycles. It's usually high tide in the morning, high tide in, uh, in, the, in the evening, and so if you're out there at the beach in the afternoon and, and you see the children down where the sand is wet and it's, it's easiest to make the sand castles, they make these elaborate or not so elaborate castles and little forts and, and things in the sand. And it's not long before the waves get closer and closer and closer and decimate their efforts. That's Havel. It's there and then it's gone. It's like going to an amusement park. The ride's great, but it always comes to an end. Here in Ecclesiastes, futility, the, the, the inability to make sense out of life, dealing with unanswered questions about life, resolving contradiction of life, that's Havel. That's what we have to deal with. That's what God calls us to embrace and understand even though we can't solve Look over at chapter 7 for a moment. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. What that's saying is God hasn't chosen to tell us everything, has he? He hasn't chosen to give us all the information. When I was in the fifth grade, fourth grade rather, because I remember that because Mr. Young was my teacher. I was in fourth grade. Um, I, I wanted a bicycle really bad. Uh, our family didn't have much money, and um, my precious dad, I, my sweet dad, we, we went down to a, um, it was a lawnmower parts store, it was actually a junkyard, and we went for about 
an hour and walked around that junkyard place and we found two tires, then we found a wheel, then we found a back wheel, then we found a frame, then we found a banana seat and we put together a bicycle. It was my bicycle. Couldn't afford one, but I think he spent $10 and got all those parts. We put them together, put some new tubes in those tires and I had a bicycle just like my friends. But there was a problem with the bicycle. The frame was so warped and the front tires were so wobbly, the front tire was so wobbly that it really, you kind of rode it sideways. (laughs) And in order to turn right, you really had to turn all the way around left. It was really bad. It was awful. But this is what I remember about that bike. I had a bike. I had a bicycle that I could ride. And I remember thinking, I'm so glad I have this bike rather than no bike. Solomon is going to tell you this world is broken. It only turns left or right sometimes. It's messed up. But he's given us ways to enjoy it, even though it's messed up. I remember talking about this very issue with uh, a friend of mine, Bill Zimmer, who's with the Lord right now. He uh, died just last year. <clears throat> and he just said, do you understand so, how, how much of this earth we enjoy because of the fall? I said, I, I, you can help me here. He said the Grand Canyon, cataclysmic effects of the flood. It's beautiful, but that's an effect of the fall. We lived in L.A. at the time. He says, you know this beautiful sunset you see every night? Pollution. Enjoy. That's why they're so beautiful. And he began to list all these things that we enjoy that are actually a a result of the planet being broken. And he says, God receives glory when we give him glory for things that, that are broken about this planet that we still say, thank you, Lord. We are living outside the garden. And Ecclesiastes is a manual on how to live after the garden, before heaven. A second reminder is this. We need to remember not to seek answers more than we seek God. We need to remember not to seek answers before we seek God. The book contrasts a self-centered lifestyle with a God-centered lifestyle. It's how to develop a God-centered worldview. It does not offer the last word on all the problems of life. Why? Why can Ecclesiastes, here's a quiz, why can Ecclesiastes not give us all the answers we need for a, for a proper worldview? It's in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes leads us to the wisdom of Christ, but it doesn't present Christ. So we should expect that its evaluations would be incomplete. But what they offer are God's word nonetheless. We need to focus on what we do know and how we can do, deal with that knowledge and not be even set back. One of the things that Ecclesiastes cycles over and over to talk about is human tragedy. Dealing with sickness, death, frustration, loss of money, loss of Income and investments. Human experience contributes the negative experience that can drive people either to agnosticism and skepticism or to God. 
Solomon is saying part of the brokenness of this planet is to make us reach for something outside of this world which is stable, which is God. So only wisdom from a biblical perspective, God's presence, God's justice can help us accept the facts of this life without having to have all the answers. It's helpful to have answers, but we don't always have them. I was thinking about this uh, just um, recently. Uh, I, I did something, and I, I remember my, my elbow kind of felt a twinge, and I remember I was in high school. I was in a wrestling match, and uh, my, my elbow was dislocated. One of the bones popped out on the inside, and I finished the match. It was right at the end. I remember finishing the match, and it was, it was killing me because I could feel it. It was starting to lock up and, and starting to quiver and, and spasm, and, and the, our trainer was a really good guy. He says, well, I know what happened. He, he took me over, and he tried to kind of pull it back into place. That didn't work out so well for him or me, and, and so we went around into this, this storage place uh, right off the stage of uh, the gymnasium, and there was a ping pong table. You know how ping pong tables, you put them up like this? Well, it was up in an A, and he put me on one side, and he got on the other, and he pulled and turned, and I felt it slide back in, and it was, it hurt like crazy for a few seconds, and then it was incredible relief. Now, I went through that pain. Well, I don't think I willingly submitted to that. He put me through that pain. That experience happened, and it was okay because I knew that this was being done to, to help me. Here's the problem. God is doing 10,000 of those things in our life all the time. But we don't know that he's the one pulling our arm. We just think things are bad. In a Christian worldview, do you have a, do you, are you ready for this? Do you, do you have a theology that can sustain this? In a Christian worldview, there is no such thing as bad. Are you ready for Romans 8, 28? For we know that God... What's the next word? Causes, what's the next word? All things to work together for good. Do you believe that? I hope you believe that, but we don't always see that. We don't always see that he's pulling our elbow to get it back in socket. We just feel the pain of it. Ecclesiastes is, in a sense, pulling back the curtains and saying, let me show you the, the, the curtain, the inner workings of God and what he's doing behind the scenes for us. But sometimes, Solomon is just going to point to the curtain and say he's back there doing something. But we may never know this side of eternity what it is. Ecclesiastes is a way of looking at life as we wait on the Lord. God's the locksmith, but he hasn't given us the key to everything. So we have to trust him. Number three, he, it's a reminder to remember to enjoy life with reverence. Remember to enjoy life with reverence. It's not all a book of gloom and doom. It's not all negative. It's not all bad. It's not intended to haunt us. Chapter two, verse 24, there's nothing better for a man than to eat, drink, and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. Work is good. Reward is good. Making money from your work is good. Spending some of it on stuff you enjoy is good. That's what God has given us in blessings. 
Look at chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. And by labor, he doesn't just mean going to work. He means everything you do to make life work. This is not Epicureanism. By the way, Luther thought that this was just a biblical articulation of Epicureanism. But Epicurus didn't live till 500 years after Solomon did. So we don't look to, for the answer to life in pleasure. That's not his purpose. It's merely a blessing of life. And once we understand pleasure as the blessing of God and not the promise of God for everything, then we can enjoy it. Then we take this over-realized eschatology out of our worldview. We're not, we're not stymied and trapped when things don't go as we hoped. We have to make sure we look to the end in order to understand the message. Solomon is also going to tell us that everything God does, he does on purpose. He's never said, whoops, uh uh-oh, we're going to have to fix that. Everything he does is on purpose. So... Whenever things don't go the way we want them to, it should be a flashing light in our soul to stop and remember that God really is in control. Some of you know that uh, a few weeks ago, I was invited to go to Idaho for a six-day elk hunt. Took my vacation, I promise. Um, Kim doesn't understand how going up and down mountains for six days and sweating and getting up at 4.30, going to bed late, napping on the, uh, on the top of a mountain, hoping bears don't come, that, that that's somehow relaxing, but it really was. And she says, my husband is a really good hunter. He's just not a good getter. So um, I've looked for this, this, this trip. A friend took me. Um, he's been promising me this, I don't know, for five years. And I finally was able to go this year. Try to get in shape. I was working hard. I was... Um, getting all my gear ready, everything. Was, I got up at 4.30 that first morning, got all the gear, backpack on, we go out. It's, now it's about five. We're going we're about two hours up the mountain so we could get to a place where we could glass, we could use our binoculars to see what we could see. And we get up there to this little clearing and it was three of us and we pulled out our binoculars to, to start glassing is what you call it, start looking. And I... I've been looking forward to this for three years. And I pulled my binoculars up and I looked through and I thought, that's interesting. And I kept adjusting and kept adjusting. And that was interesting. Glasses on, glasses off. Nothing was working. And it turned out that I was in possession of a very broken pair of binoculars on a hunt that I had waited five years to go on. And I was not happy about it at all. Now, there's a problem. And the problem was I've been studying Ecclesiastes for about two months to get ready for this. And I knew, because I'd written it down right here in my notes on my iPad to see very clear that everything that happens that we perceive as bad, 
is not ultimately bad. It's a reminder to look to God. So I began looking for God. No, I wasn't looking for God. I couldn't have seen him through those binoculars anyway. But I just, I just said, Lord, why? I need these binoculars. We were two hours into the woods. It wasn't like you could go uh, down to Dick's Sporting Goods and buy some more. We were way out. Now, here's what I found out. I had about 30 minutes of a really serious, I know you don't think it's a big deal, but this was a serious attitude toward God. Almost articulating it like this, really, God? I mean, five years I've looked forward to this, and now this, by the way, I did not get an elk, if you're asking. But I had a good hunt, not a good get. Over the next five days, we were hunting in timber and on the side of hills that was so thick, I never had to see more than 50 yards. So I didn't even need any binoculars. And it was almost like God, at every turn, was saying, really? Really? Oh, really? You punk? Oh, really? You've got this off? You really need those binoculars? You're mad at me about that? You didn't know I had this figured out for you? And I got to be honest, I was thinking about Ecclesiastes that whole time. It's like, well, I don't need those binoculars now. Well, I don't need that. God is good and I'm stupid. And, and I don't know how to tell you this, but that's going to be what's going to happen to all of us. Is that when we see that God actually is sovereign and in control and cares about us. And if I had needed binoculars the whole time, it would have still been right for him to do that. And I might not have ever understood why. So the conclusions to the book of Ecclesiastes, I want to give you at the beginning so that we can study it together. We need to set aside all anxious striving and labor. Avoid all speculation on God's ruling of the world. Trust that he knows what he's doing. Be thankful to God for whatever satisfaction he gives us and whatever he withholds from us. Value and measure everything as a gift from him and to enjoy it. And never forget that we have to render a strict accounting to him, and that we are riding a broken bicycle. But we're riding the bicycle. Are you ready? Do you have a theology to enjoy the world and the planet and the people and know that it's all broken, but it's still to be enjoyed? Are your expectations set by God and his revelation, or are they set by our own desires? Well, I hope that uh, that encourages you. Just read the book of Ecclesiastes. Just go ahead and read it. See what you think. Read it in one sitting. That's the best way to do it. And at the end, you're going to say, huh, and this was for kids to understand. We're going to study it and take it apart verse by verse and try to put it together as we go through. And this is going to give us a philosophy of loving and enjoying life under the sun, under the watchful and careful and giving hand of God, which will lead us to know that Christ himself is the ultimate pleasure in life. Lord, we want to study this book with open hearts and open eyes that we see the elements of this world you've given us to enjoy. We also see and understand that Jesus Christ is the only satisfaction 
that will never, ever diminish. He's the only one with whom we will be satisfied where there will never be any disappointment. He's the only one who will satisfy us in this world and the next. So lead us to Christ from Solomon's wisdom. Thank you for these precious people, this body here at Mission Road who love your word, who love your truth, who love each other. Bond us together even more as we begin to study this important book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.